geek. Traditionally, the sorts of fandoms associated with geeks were limited to specific genres or media, science fiction, fantasy, comic books, video games. But now, people are proud to call themselves geeks about any number of things. Cooking, sports, classic rock. I'm Dr. Michael Boyce, and this is Geek 4, a podcast that explores fans and fandom, how people became fans of things, and how that fandom evolved over time, how it's impacted people's lives. Most of us are enthusiasts for something, so tell me, what are you a geek for? My guest today is Dr. Lisa Funnel. Lisa is an associate professor in women and gender studies uh, department at the University of Oklahoma. She's a leading expert on gender, feminism, geopolitics, James Bond, and other action films. And she is my favorite person to hang out with at conferences. Lisa, thank you for joining me. Hello. So um, there's probably a really eloquent way to have brought in that we're going to talk about your love of James Bond, but it's so tied in with your professional work, it was hard to bury the lead. How did you get into James Bond movies? I don't actually know. I grew up with them. And so my dad was a James Bond fan. We would have Sunday dinners together. We could pick whatever movie we wanted to watch. And we would invariably pick the Roger Moore James Bond films. And so we were able to sit with TV trays in front of the television and watch James Bond films. And so, you know, my love of Roger Moore um, sort of action comedies. Um, I know somebody on social media was talking about him being very wooded and mannequin-like, and I'm like, I like that, and I like his eyebrow action and the way that he delivers lines. Like, there's just something about him and his performance that always just resonated with me. So I grew up on these films. They have always been sort of a, a part of my a part of my world, just like Star Wars is part of my world. I don't remember a time when Star Wars wasn't part of my world. I don't know when I've watched my first Star Wars film. Uh, so I, I sort of uh, collapsed them all together as just formative texts of my childhood. I like that. And I love how enthusiastic you are about Roger Moore <laughs> because like, th this is something we share, um, a, a love of James Bond. This is certainly something we've, we've discussed many times and, and maybe this whole podcast endeavor is an opportunity to talk to you about James Bond. You have made me reassess Roger Moore because I'm I'm a Sean Connery guy, um, mm -hmm. and I I mean your enthusiasm is infectious for Moore. Uh, and you're right; those films have a different tone, and uh, there's a lightness to them that's actually quite appealing. Uh, as everything now is dark. Oh, it's so dark. <laughs> It's just like, you know, somebody just, you know, uh, cuts him off on the street and like Daniel Craig is like, this is due to my childhood trauma. And I'm like, what? It's so, it's so dark. His entire uh, era is just one big downer. And so I guess maybe that makes me appreciate more, even more. Yeah. Somebody was, I forget what it was, some reboot of something. They're going to they're gonna go gritty and dark. It's like, wow, that's conventional. <laughs> I haven't seen that before. I, I'm really amazed at the way in which you are able to maintain that enthusiasm for Bond. And it is such an important part of your professional life. You have three books on Bond that you have written, edited, or co-edited? I have two and I'm working on a third. So yes, three is technically the correct number. Yes. Okay, good, good. Um, <laughs> future books count as books. Like that's, 
that's a lot of bond. A lot of bond. How do you balance that? And it's it's funny because I think I, one of the one of the questions I get asked the most in a professional sense. So when we get our annual reviews, I always get the 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 sort of like, so are you done with Bond? Are you going to move on to something else? I'm like. I already wrote a book on Chinese warrior women. I already have a whole entire like secondary focus. Mm -hmm. And I'm more, I'm working on a book on the Me Too movement. It's not as if I don't do no. other things. I actually do, and I think I do them fairly well. But the thing with Bond, and I guess it's just my my connection to just film scholarship in general, I've always thought that there are so many gaps in scholarship. And I think our goal as professors is to sit down and fill out that space. And so for me, my goal is to not replicate or repeat what other people have done. Because you know, a lot of people will tell you the cultural history of James Bond or uh, talk about Cold War politics in James Bond. And I think these are all incredibly valuable studies and work, but I've noticed that there was this huge gap when it came to talking about gender and, and women and representation. And that extends beyond, you know, typical conversations of cis women. You know, are we talking about trans and non-binary characters or the lack thereof? Are we talking about characters of, 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 of different racial groups and ethnic groups? How are they being presented? Um, are we talking about the difference between characters from, say, the Northern Hemisphere and the Western Hemisphere compared to, you know, those who are presented in the global south and I just feel like there's just so much that hasn't been discussed and this is a franchise that has been around for we're almost hitting 60 years mm -hmm. scholarship film scholarship really started at the 40-year mark and so we have so many of these influential texts I think it's estimated that what is it half of the world's population have seen a bond film like that's billions and billions of people who've at least encountered these texts in some way shape or form and i guess for me thinking about it why shouldn't we all be talking about this like what are the messages being said if this is a formative text of my childhood what messages have been sent to me now whether or not i've accepted them digested them you know taken different different elements and value that's a that's a different process you know i'm thinking of um is it stuart hall who talks about like negotiated readings like why are we not talking and thinking about these texts and i guess i've, I've come to the realization that it's not just entertainment that these things do have a fundamental impact on who we are when we think about you and I have talked about like, what's your first drink order? And we're like a martini dry, shake it, not stirred. Like we mimic these texts and we do it to perform, but we're also taking in messages. Like we don't, these are not benign texts. They become part of who we are. And shouldn't we be then studying the content of what we're, we're, we're sort of taking in and performing and replicating? Yes, I agree. <laughs> And, and I, I think like you, you touched on so, so many things there, but like these are texts that reinterpret themselves every time a new actor takes on, on the role. And the films of Roger Moore are very different than the films of, of Daniel Craig. And they look different and they feel different and they actually have different politics at play. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's a rich field of study. But are you able to just sit down and watch... A Roger Moore film with a TV tray anymore? Did you lose something in the in the studying it? Here's the thing: I don't. 
I don't think I've lost something. I, I, as someone who's taught straight up film courses in the past, I'm in a women's and gender studies program now. So my courses tend to tilt that way. I've had students ask me, are you going to ruin films for me? Um, and I'm sure you get that too, given oh. you know our shared profession. And I think that it's, it's, it's an interesting question, but I think media literacy is incredibly important. Mm. I think that we have been encouraged to think about film as just being mass entertainment. It's there for our pleasure. I've had so many people say, oh my gosh, it's just a movie, let it go. And I'm like, but if millions of people are watching it and buying into that idea, what does that then mean? Who's creating our culture? When we think about our cultural industry, it actually is one of privilege, right? There's a reason why the vast majority of films in Hollywood are written, directed, and produced by men for a presumed uh, audience made up of men, right? It's privilege telling stories about privilege to privilege, right? And the rest of us are just sort of sitting here like trying to make some sense and some meaning of it, taking the elements that we connect with, but also being told like who's kind of important. And so I don't know if I want to go back to a time where I didn't realize that that process was happening, where I didn't realize, you know, that I as a woman am being told my relative position in this world. And so even as a Bond scholar and as a Bond fan, I do approach it from the fact that like, I love these texts. I get a lot of enjoyment from them. I love action films. That's my bread and butter. Like I'll watch them. I can, I can enjoy them. But I also I think it's important as fans for us to sit there, watch them and say, okay, what did I like? What didn't I like? And then to be vocal and say, well, maybe how could we do better? Do we really need to have sexism in James Bond? Is it part of the core brand? Or, you know, can women be valued for their competency and skills? Like, wouldn't we want James Bond to be partnered in the field with somebody who can hold their own so they can get the mission done? You know, is the damsel in distress trope so central? Um, and some of my audience study research says, no, it's not. That fans mm. don't actually like that. Um, and so I think it's it's just it's one of those things where it's it's okay to question and I think we're in an interesting social media time, you know, with conspiracy theories and conspiracy videos and, and the like, and we look at it and we laugh, but I, I also think it's important to have healthy skepticism and to question. Mm -hmm. Now that doesn't mean buy into lack of facts and false knowledge and stuff like that. But being a critical consumer, having media literacy can allow us to look at those videos and say, okay, look, there are some issues factually with these. There's a certain perspective who's creating them. What message are they trying to convey? What's the goal? What's the justification? And if we do it for those videos, why is it that we're not doing it for Hollywood videos? Why is it that we accept them full, full, full sale? And I think one of the interesting things is, the way that audiences have then taken, you know, these texts, whether it's James Bond, I think Star Wars has a pretty developed fan base. I know Doctor Who has a really uh, engaged fan base. And fans look at these texts, they see what is there, and then they go through this process of creating their own fan culture to fill in the gaps as to what is not there, mm. how they want to see themselves be represented or how they're connecting with these texts and creating these offshoots. And I think that is a very interesting process of engagement. And through social media, we're seeing more of that happening. And I think it goes to show that people do want 
an expansion and extension or or more. And if you're not going to give it to them in, in the primary text, they're, they're, they're going to create their own textual uh, materials um, with it. And I think as producers of culture, uh, I think it's important to be attentive to the fact that that process is happening. And I'm not sure where we are with the with the box office, I don't know what's going to happen to the cinema industry, like who knows what's going to happen. But I think then it's really important to listen to what people want and where they are, mm -hmm. because you are going to rely on them more so now than ever for your financial um, stability. So I don't know, this could be a huge turning point in terms of media representation. We're seeing some shifts already on some racist tropes and advertising, uh, teams, uh, merchandising that I never thought I would see, you know, at all. Like, I didn't think that, you know, the Washington NFL team would ever change their name. Like, ever. I teach about no. that in my like social justice class where we talk about, like, you know, when we think about like teams and logos and stuff, what do you get? You get animals, you get weather, and you get Native American imagery. Mm -hmm. Like it's dehumanizing, but it's so persistent. And that was a team that was like, it'll never happen. And then suddenly it's happening. Like, we, yeah. so I, I think we're just in a really interesting and important and, 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 and maybe transitionary moment. It sucks to uh, go through it. I think all of us can be a, <laughs> Feel that like this really sucks, you know, because change hurts. Change is hard. Change takes struggle. It sucks. It takes consistency. It takes failure in in, in your task, and and of course regrouping. Mm -hmm. But but yeah, I think this could be a really interesting moment. And I've taken your question and totally like ran with it. <laughs> Took the football. And that's why you're here. <laughs> no, it, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the the Washington example is is very apt. Um, I mean, that has been talked about in in sports media for thirty years. Yeah, and and the position of the team has always been absolutely not. And we came to a point where apparently that's not true anymore, uh, which is great. Um, but you're also, I mean change is hard. Change is painful. That's when you get people who kind of dig their heels in and you know don't want change and become more vocal um yeah to me it is such an interesting uh phenomenon with 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 fan culture um that that there is this spect expected level of engagement but but often it's it's mistakenly thought to be it needs to be uncritical um or the voices that get heard in terms of like speaking back are the toxic voices uh, we've seen that with the Star Wars franchise. I, I thought the last film was was basically placating the toxic voices that were uh, so vocal about um, the second film of the last trilogy, which was called Last Jedi. Was that Last Jedi? Gosh, I, I don't know. I'd have to look at my DVDs because I. No. Yeah, I, I just completely killed my my Star Wars credibility, but I'm no longer. You know what? I, the, the, they all blend together. There's like the last. No, the last Jedi was the most recent one. Uh, no, that was Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> I swear, I like we like old Star Wars. Okay, yes, we like the yeah. original trilogy yeah. before yes. the CGI era. That's, you know, that's like, my jam. Yeah. Okay. Yes, I'm with you there. I'm just yeah. like, oh gosh. Well, and again, 
one of the things like one of the things behind this podcast or ideas behind this podcast is I realized watching uh, Last Jedi with my niece, who was 10, I think, at the, at the time, like she was so into it and she just identified with the idea of all these all these kids becoming Jedis or realizing their force power. And I was like, this has kind of passed me by, but I appreciate being able to pass this on or experience it with my niece who is developing that. I was a huge Star Wars fan growing up, but like I've kind of, I still, I still, I still love it. I still, I still enjoy it. I'm not that anymore, um, but I can appreciate and enjoy her fandom. It's so much fun to watch uh, her showing up at the film with the Chewbacca mask on. It was great. Oh yay! <laughs> but yeah, um, but there's also this idea that if you're a fan of something, you have to accept wholesale whatever. Yeah. Sure. whatever the text says or and i love how you're able to articulate the the responsibility of a fan to mm-hmm. to push back on texts that might not be good that might be problematic that's i think a really valuable thing to to say i think of you know the the stuff with harry potter coming out now with with jk rowling's just putting her foot in her mouth seemingly at every turn you can still like the thing but challenge what is not good Yeah, and I think it's a really important point because I feel as though this idea of, and it's something I encounter, right? Because I I have been shifting and expanding beyond academia Mm -hmm. and and, and engaging more with the fan community of James Bond, which I will say has been very open, warm, and welcoming uh, to me, very open and receptive to my ideas, and hopefully understands that my critiques come from a place of fandom. Like I critique this stuff and I spend my life focusing on this stuff because I love it. And, and, um, but oftentimes when you critique something, someone takes offense to it and you can critique the text without critiquing or criticizing. I think it gets mistaken critiquing criticism, the person for liking it. And there's nothing wrong with liking a text. There's nothing wrong with having pleasure uh, Mm -hmm. and taking pleasure in a text, but you can also at the same time say, there's some elements that are, are not that great. I can still like it. I can actually love it. I can quote it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And yet I can still look at it and be like, you know, this element could do a little bit better. What is wrong with that, that sort of notion? Uh, and I sort of think about like, I think it was something that Barack Obama said, and it's always sort of stuck with me about like the United States. He's like, we're always working towards, and I am quoting, misquoting him here, but like, <laughs> we're always working towards creating a more perfect union. We are not, we haven't reached it. There's this idea of, a, of the United States. It is, it is, I don't know if it's a myth or an idea or a concept. I like the word concept. I love the concept of the United States. Uh-huh. We just haven't hit the United States part. Like we really haven't hit the United part. We can work harder and we can work towards it and we can keep growing. And I think that that's just like, isn't that like the goal of like human life and condition is to constantly learn and grow. But in order to do that, that sometimes takes taking in critique, mm-hmm. self-reflection, and then deciding who we are and, and, and what we want to uh, determine about the world. And I think that that is a difficult thing about maybe being an adult. Um, but I think it's a necessary component of living sort of a full holistic life. And so I can sit here and critique James Bond and there's things that I do not like, but oh goodness, there's things that I do like. And I think about your niece, you know, I think it's great that she gets to grow up in a world where 
you know, a young woman gets to be a Jedi because I didn't grow up in that world. I grew up in a world with Princess Leia and Princess Leia is in my, in my estimation, a really great cinematic figure. Somebody who was focused on uh, the task at hand and never wavered. The other guys wavered. There was a lot of wavering going on, right? She was always focused and steadfast, <laughs> right? She was the glue that really held that trio um, together. And she is the hero that I grew up with. And then I also grew up with, you know, the women featured in Octopussy, which again, the title makes it seem like the film is incredibly regressive and there are problems with it. But, you know, Bond goes to this island and it's populated exclusively with women, women of different races, ethnicities, backgrounds, who are independent, who are, uh, um, they fight utilizing martial arts, so they're capable of defending themselves. They're trained, and they're these entrepreneurs trying to make their own own money. And there's something as a young girl looking at that, being like, "Awesome, you know, I can be tough and strong and entrepreneurial, and like that's okay." And films sometimes say, "Like you can be what you can see." Having these images, are they perfect? No. But they were there and I could I could connect with them and be like, wow, that's awesome. I could be a princess and I can be a fighter and I can be a businesswoman and I could be whatever. And and so I think about, you know, your niece and she has she has that and she's got Wonder Woman and she's got Captain Marvel. But I also have to push and say that's great as white girls. But what happens to all the other children out there who are of different racial minorities, who do they get to look up to? Do they always have to look up to the white superheroes, right? Or are we going to get to the point where we give you more than one option, right? We've got Black Panther, awesome. Are we going to give you more? Black Panther, I love that movie because it has strong black women. I mean, he's cool, but the women in his life are amazing, right? Seeing that, seeing a film populated with more than one image, more than one um, expression of identity and, and, and heroism and innocence, femininity, right? Different types of women doing amazing things. To me, that's what we need, but we need that like tenfold. And we need to make sure that we're creating content um, beyond say black and white communities right and beyond looking at you know cisgender communities and beyond looking at heterosexual communities right and so i i want and i hope that um media is being created uh for these different groups of people so that they don't just have to engage in fan culture to create their own places and own spaces you know our culture tells us what is important and who is important if you're represented in mainstream uh, culture, it means that you do matter in some way, shape or form. And that also means that the people creating this content need to be part of those spaces in those cultures. And uh, I'm, in my mind, I'm reacting to something I recently read that was, I think they were trying to green light. I don't remember which racial group, but I don't know if they were um, television shows about black communities television shows about Asian communities, I can't remember, uh, but they were all scripted by white script writers. And so then producers were trying to bring in um, uh, screenwriters from those like racial groups to come in and clean up the scripts. And like, 
the idea that you're only there to spot shot a script rather than being there in terms of the actual like conceptual design. And, and here's the thing, I don't have a problem with, with white people writing scripts about a variety of communities, but do so in collaboration and in concert and do your research and, and be connected to those places, spaces and people. <laughs> I'm just raising everything. I know we're supposed to be talking about Bond again. That's fine. I'm I'm happy to go to, to rabbit holes are, are half the half the fun. See, so. I, I do more than just James Bond in my mind. <laughs> it's all I there. <laughs> I know you do. If you were if you were advising someone or helping someone who said, Lisa, I want to get into James Bond. I've heard about it, but I don't even know where to start almost 60 years worth of films where how are you advising a new fan to get into bond you know that's a difficult question because i've actually been asked by a couple people um about what films they want to introduce their children to bond of a variety of ages um and of different genders and i'm just at first i'm like well i'm not a parent <laughs> and you know um in terms of like child rearing, child raising, clinical psychology, that's not my area of expertise. So it sort of puts me in, in a bit of a bind because I don't want to mis mislead uh, when it comes to parenting. I think that anytime you introduce any text, it's really important to be there with your kids mm -hmm. and to talk about and address and explain what is going on on screen. So that is my like preface. Yes. Um, and I, so I think it's really difficult depending on like, I don't know if a 10 year old would really get into like Casino Royale, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't really have the typical things that a child would like. And so I think a, a lighter era, um, a more comedic era, like a Brosnan or a more era film might actually just be more appealing because it's just, it's brighter, it's lighter. There's gadgets and little like flashy things that they could connect to. In terms of an adult, if you're asking me about an adult, it's hard to say because like when I teach my Bond course, we start at Dr. No, we mm -hmm. can't watch every film. We only have 15 weeks, you know, there's more <laughs> films than that. Um, and then we start moving our way through it. And I try to give them clips peppered in of the ones that we, so if I give examples, I'll give examples from, you know, the films that we don't talk about. And that's an interesting journey. I call that transtextual study, right? And so you can actually understand and see the development of the franchise. That being said, Dr. No's really slow. Yeah. Um, I had a friend who tried to start with Dr. No and he was like, I don't get it. And I'm like, oh, no, maybe. Maybe? <laughs> maybe not that one. Yeah. It's, it's also from 1962 and it's sort of an older style film. So... I'm not sure where to begin. The, the good thing is prior to the Daniel Craig era, all the Bond films are, are more or less episodic. Yeah. So you can watch any one of those films and understand it from start to finish. So I would say if you want like a, a lighter and brighter film, maybe hit a more film. If you want like kind of like an action comedy, but with like more heavy on the action rather than sort of like the judo chop. Um, that's my Austin Powers right there. Um, <laughs> that's basically all Roger Moore does. Yeah. Um, then, you know, maybe hit a Brosnan one. If you like to have something that's maybe just like a little bit uh, a more moody 
then hit a Dalton one up. If you want something to understand sort of classic bond and you know, what, what, what sort of people who are, are considered like classic fans of bond, then maybe start with, you know, a Sean Connery one, maybe not Dr. No, um, in order to understand, you know, uh, the popularity of it. And if you do watch Thunderball, the good news is for the underwater sequence, you can just watch it on 1.5 speed and it speeds it up and everything actually works a lot. It works a lot better. It's funny because uh, when I used to teach um, European art film of the interwar period, I would always tell my students how much I loved um, movies that either had like those inner title cards or that were like completely uh, subtitled. And they're like, why? And I told my students, I'm like, because you can watch them on 1.5 speed. You can get through it in less time. And they're looking at me and I was just like, I am your professor. I am beating you down a very naughty path. But I do have to say, um, I have a DVD player. You can tell that we're friends because now you're getting like all the good stuff. I have a DVD player and I never want to give it up because I can watch movies on 1.5 speed and it plays the sound at 1.5 speed. Oh, I know. So anytime I do class prep, so I can watch, I, I, if I'm class prepping an action film, like the action sequences are on 1.5 speed until dialogue, then I press play. I listen to them talk, press the 1.5 and they just continue to do stuff. So. You're going to have to give me the make and model of that DVD player. It's a Panasonic, but it's from like eight years ago. So I, I'm like, I'm so afraid of my TV dying and needing to go to a new system because like, I don't have another player. I have like a Blu-ray player because my smart TV is not smart anymore uh, that I have to use for Netflix and stuff. And I have like a PS4, but it doesn't play it with the sound. So like, I'm very concerned. Um, there are yeah. many times in a film prop's life where 1.5 speed, very, very, very important. All right, I'm. Would you would you humor me and try a uh, a little uh, a little quick answer? I'm calling the fast four. No, no, forget it. You have to. I have you trapped. Okay, <laughs> okay, fast four. Quick question, quick response. Uh, can be about things that are Bond, things are that you are just geeky in in general about. I'm so nervous. What was the first thing you were a geek for? Star Wars, I think. What is the geekiest thing you own? I think I have a t-shirt that says nerdy by nature. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty geeky. <laughs> Is there something that you were a geek for that you are no longer a geek for? Uh, I think that's my answer. I don't know. What is something you are a fan of that would surprise people? I like reality TV. I love the TV show Survivor. I like anything that's challenge oriented. The idea and like of living outdoors, which I don't do outdoors, like peeing outdoors, like living, surviving, and then like going and like battling it out and like doing math problems and like puzzles and stuff. It's so beyond anything that I could ever want to do that I admire the people for doing it. And so I, I like sort of, those types of, of shows. And of course I love the, oh my gosh, I love the drama. 
And oh my gosh, I love Bachelor in Paradise. I don't like the Bachelor franchises themselves. I think it's really weird to have one person dating like 25. But like the Bachelor in Paradise series has become so cheesy about like the way that people just fall in love in 30 seconds and the person leaves and there's another person and then they have like the 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 intros are mocking the people for being on it like it's so awful that i love it um so yeah maybe people will be surprised i love pop culture so maybe that's surprising that surprised me so (laughs) (laughs) all right thank you so much for your time lisa it is always good to chat with you where can people find you on social media uh, you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Lisa Funnel. You can find me on Facebook, Dr. Lisa Funnel. You can find me on Instagram, Dr. Lisa Funnel. But my website is only lisafunnel.com. So it might get a little confusing. And by the way, can I add to, the, to all of this? Mm-hmm. Um, we are not only just conference buddies. We're not only just longtime friends. But... You are one of two people that I trust with uh, safeguarding and proofreading my work before I share it with the rest of the academic world. Uh, there's you, there's Klaus Dodds. Both of you are my good friends. You two are friends with each other, so that's pretty awesome. Uh, but it's always nice to have somebody, especially when my work is so important to me that I can sort of trust. And you have always said yes. You've never said no simply to just sort of going through and reading my work. And so I think my success is in part due to your friendship and your support. So I think your listeners need to know that, you know, you're a pretty awesome human being. Oh, um, I'm glad this is an audio format so people can't see me blushing. Um, <laughs> and, and, I mean, same thing. I, you, you very often, you know, when you have a project going, um, invite me in and, uh, and I deeply appreciate it. Um, yeah. I love getting the update that your students are reading my chapter from your book. <laughs> Makes me happy. So thank you. Yay! Thank you for joining me on Geek 4. You can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Geek4Pod or me on Twitter at MWBoyce. If you listen on Apple Podcast, click the subscribe button and consider leaving a five-star review. Be sure to join us next time when we learn what someone else is a geek for.